Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. is Mike Fader, uh, <clears throat> and I hope it lasts, uh, continues to be Mike Fader for at least uh, the next uh, 50 or so minutes, so you can hear a radio show. Um, took the last couple of weeks, so those people who listen to live, and uh, for those people who were looking for a brand new show for the last two weeks, I was obviously off, taking some time off my kids, who live uh, somewhere in outer space, one of them is uh, near... Uh, Seattle. One lives in Seattle, and the other one lives in uh, on the East Coast city to be named at a later date. But anyhow, they live far away. So they came in and visiting, and my daughter brought her daughter, my granddaughter. So that was great to see them. I don't see them that often. And otherwise, just taking time off. My wife took, wife took time off. So uh, it was um, 
kind of a taking an easy couple of weeks. And here I am back at the grindstone. Because I don't notice the salary loss. I get paid per show. It's a million dollars per show here at the Progressive Radio Network. Um, uh the uh, the staff here is richly rewarded. Every, everybody on the staff here makes $10 million a year. And I myself, that's right. And I myself get a million dollars per show. And if you believe that, you should probably listen to the Progressive Radio Network for a while so you get a, a, in touch with reality. It's fucking freezing in New York City today. And it has been for the last several days. And it will continue to be for the next few days at least. Uh, <clears throat> people who... Um, say that, uh, though I couldn't make all the scientific connections for you right now, uh, this is, an, ex- this is a, um, an argument why people uh, scoff at the idea that there's something called global warming. If, it's, if there's global warming, why isn't it 50 degrees today instead of uh, 11 degrees outside? You know, there, but uh, it has nothing to do with it, um, according to a lot of people who, you know, who don't believe in uh, global warming. But uh, the change in the weather is intricate. And the fact that we have more cold temperatures um, and worse storms uh, over the course of uh, the last few years is an example of global warming. But I I really couldn't give you... I should invite somebody on here to uh, give you the exact details. Maybe I will do that. Why it is connected to that. Anyhow, it's freezing. It was uh, for a couple of days, a few days actually, it was about... 10 to 15 degrees below freezing, below 32. Today, it's <clears throat> about 20 degrees or more below freezing. Uh, yesterday, we had a big snowstorm in New York City. I mean, for New York City, it was a big snowstorm. It was, um, it was uh, about 8 inches, lots of drifts. But I've seen it worse in the city. I've seen it worse where the traffic was. Uh, you couldn't even, um, you, couldn't even uh, you know, get around at all for days. But what will happen with this cold weather is... Uh, the uh, people walking on the sidewalks and people driving in the streets uh, will turn everything into slush, uh, and then that will just freeze overnight. And um, even if a couple of hours go by and there isn't that much traffic it'll, on the sidewalks or in the streets, it'll freeze anyhow. So, and this past weekend, it, was down, it went down to 9 degrees this past weekend. In fact, on New Year's Eve, um, it was uh, 9 degrees. And still... There were hundreds of thousands of people in Times Square. I don't know who goes to Times Square at midnight in the winter. Who does that? I never did it, but on the other hand, I am the least adventurous person that you would ever possibly know. No, nobody could be less adventurous than me, more timid. I mean, I was, I did take a lot of risks when I was in my 20s and 30s, but uh, they were more, they weren't for the spirit of adventure so much to see if I could. Uh, test the gods to see if they would let me live. But still, if I acted like an asshole, would they still let me live? I would drive out to places where there were hurricanes at the beach and, um, you know, uh, drive 100 miles an hour down on country roads, stuff like that. I don't know if that's adventurous or just stupid. But I'm wondering, who goes to Times Square at midnight? I mean, it's obviously extroverts, extroverted people. A lot of them maybe you know, drunk or high, I guess, uh, because it's cold out. And uh, probably half of them are tourists. Uh, And uh, I suppose an average age of around 25, maybe, I'm guessing. Um, This year, it seems to me, you probably had to be, you know, maybe especially hardy to go out there. Obviously, it was much colder than it was uh, the last couple of New Year's Eves. And maybe even foolhardy when you you consider uh, that the constant real threat of, um, of some lunatic setting off a bomb 
to celebrate the glory of Allah or whatever it is that these uh, deranged people think they're doing. Um, like the guy who set off a, a bomb, well, or tried to set off a bomb, thank God didn't go off, thank Allah it didn't go off, in the subway a couple of weeks ago, in one of the busiest parts of New York City, underground, where it would have caused unbelievable damage. So uh, I always look at, you know, me, Mr. Judgment, and I always make these New Year's resolutions. I make resolutions actually about once every two weeks on this show for the last few years that I'm not going to judge or be critical of other people or other things. And um, I try. It may seem like I don't try, but I do try. But uh, <clears throat> people going down there on New Year's Eve, I guess, I don't know. I guess, you know, they'd say you only live once or it's something they wanted to experience. But I can't even imagine doing it. I mean, really, why would you do that when you had a warm house to stay inside or a warm apartment? On the other hand, I always had a kind of a, like a sneaking envy of people who would go and do a thing like that. Like, I've, I've always envied people who were more extroverted, more adventurous, because I'm basically so timid, like a rabbit. But, um, well, at least nothing happened, all right? So that's, the good, that's a good start to the New Year's. Nothing happened at all. People got cold. Maybe there's a little frostbite here and there. But that's the, that's the level. <laughs> I say nothing happened. That's the level our current world, basically the public world, has fallen to. Not that you're happy when something... Good happens, but just that you're happy when a few hours go by and nothing awful has happened. That's that's our world right now. Anyhow, it's cold. It's cold in this city. And uh, the other day, I just turned the living room radiator on in the apartment. Yeah, you know, first time in four years. We had mild winters. I don't remember weather very well. My wife always remembers what the weather was like last year or the year before. I never remember the weather. You know, I could think. You know, think past the next hour would be an achievement for me, or past that <laughs> in the past. But as we turn the, I turn the radiator on because I'm home most of the day, and um, it's the first time in four years I turned it on. Usually in in our building, um, there's a tremendous amount of heat. In fact, sometimes too much heat. Uh, the super loves heat, sends up a lot of heat, and um, but we turn the radiators off. Some people in New York City apartments, if they have, if they're blessed to have a lot of heat, they turn their radiators off. And if you live on a higher floor, we live on the sixth floor of the building, so we've got five floors of people who probably have their radiators on. It's generally warm enough, but not this year. I can tell that radiator is going to be on a lot. The reason we keep it off, which a lot of people in cities understand, um, is that uh, in these apartment buildings, it can get so hot sometimes if the heat is actually working that the air just dries out. I mean, it becomes, uh, you know, the air, I mean, your, your throat and your nose and everything just uh, dry up. You have to put humidifiers on. One machine leads to another machine, leads to another machine. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the kind of environment. If you live in an urban environment, it's more and more artificial in a way, right? So um, you, you do one improvement, one mechanical or technical improvement, and you have to offset it or balance it out by another technical or mechanical improvement. And uh, but I am <clears throat> definitely going to have the um, the radiators on. I think uh, this winter doesn't look like a good one. I mean, I know the whole country is suffering. I'm complaining about New York, but the whole country is suffering. I mean, there's record cold and snowstorms everywhere. I mean, records are being broken everywhere in the country for the records that have lasted since there was a you know uh, tabulation since there was statistics kept back in the in the eighteen and late eighteen hundreds. I mean. Um, I was in a supermarket the other day and um, shivering because there wasn't enough heat, but there's never enough heat in that supermarket. I think, obviously, they do it to keep the 
the food, you know, um, from spoiling. And it was um, uh, it was uh, on New Year's Day, actually. And I went into the supermarket, and I heard a broadcast. Uh, they play music over the loudspeakers there. I heard a broadcast of a live concert from someplace in uh, Minneapolis. And the announcer said the temperature there was five degrees below zero. Five degrees below zero, which is hard for me to actually imagine. I mean, I, I really, I just can't even imagine that. And I've, I've heard over the years, though, from people who live in places like Detroit and Chicago and other cities sort of in the, in the northern Midwest and northeast and the northwest. And they say New York is practically tropical compared with those places. I mean, I've heard people like, you know, poo-pooing, pardon the expression, you know, when I complain about 10-degree weather in New York. But uh, it goes down. It goes down to like below zero, which uh, I don't think it has ever happened in my lifetime in New York. Anyhow, my wife's family, who live up in Maine, are reporting that it's been in the single digits with a couple of feet of snow piled up, sort of, you know, ongoing for the last several weeks and will continue that way. Um, and more of the same, you know, right? More of the same is predicted. In Portland, Maine, According to the newspaper we looked at the other day, in Portland, Maine, it was 17 degrees below zero the other day. 17 degrees below zero. <clears throat> and they talk about the windshield. I don't. When was windshield invented? Sometime in um, in the 1970s or 80s. Uh, when people run out of things to say, they come up with these phrases that somebody in some meeting, you know, with the news department or the weather department, whatever, get together. Let's call it wind chill because, you know, people say, oh, it's 10 degrees, but it feels like it's 20. Okay, so call it something. You don't need to call it something. Everybody knows what that means, but it's a wind chill. And uh, so these reports from Maine, which we're getting all the time because my wife talks to her uh, mother up there and her siblings, um, it just, just envisioning what it must be like up there, it's, uh, it makes... Uh, it makes the whole discussion that we've been having, and you, if you've been listening to me, you, you've been hearing this uh, back and forth, sort of thinking out loud, and the discussion that we're having in my house about moving up to Maine to be with my wife's family and to get away from New York City, which we're not too thrilled about. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it's the winter is the big problem. The winters, it's absolutely beautiful up there in the late spring. And uh, all through the summer and in the early fall. But apparently in the winter, it's one of the coldest places in the, in the country, if not the coldest place sometimes. And darker. It's darker sooner. And I don't like that either. <clears throat> I don't know. So we haven't made up our minds yet. Will we ever make up our minds? I do not know. I certainly would announce it to you. And you'd hear, you'd hear me on the radio anyhow. I would broadcast from up there. I guess if you lived up there in Maine, if you lived there for decades and decades, like uh, my wife's family has, you're used to it. I remember a couple of um, summers um, visiting up there over the years, and it got pretty cool at night and in the early morning, even in the summer. It was down in the mid-50s sometimes in the, in the morning or overnight, and I had to put a sweater on. But the Mainers, the people who live up there, hardly noticed it at all. Just the usual shirts, even T-shirts and shorts, Right. I think it's just survival of the fittest, survival of the fittest. If you live in these places, and I know there are some people, Facebook friends. I have some Facebook friends, which is a whole other discussion we'll have sometime. <laughs> kind of why am I on Facebook? I don't know. Sometime, once in a while, it seems to be a useful thing to do. 90% of the time, it seems to be the emperor's new clothes, like a totally superficial, wasteful, unnecessary way of, uh, of relating to other people. But uh, who am I to say? There's over a billion people on Facebook. 
you know, obviously it brings people closer together. I suppose. Sometimes I feel like the silliness on Facebook to bring people close, further apart. I'm often getting these notices if you're on Facebook. Is it everybody on Facebook? I get these notices saying, um, um, here's a memory from two years ago we thought you'd like. Who thought I would like? It's a machine that figured this out. It's the cloud figured out that I would like it. They're not human. They don't know what I would like. You know, we thought you'd like to remember this, this uh, posting on Facebook. No, not really. Uh, I, if I wanted to, my memory would do that. I don't need Facebook, an algorithm to do that, whatever an algorithm is. But um, anyhow, I guess it is survival of the fittest. You live, up, you live in these cold places. Either you get used to it or you move south or you just die off, right? That's the way it goes. Uh, and this, this whole idea of moving south, that was always a big thing when I, when, you know, when I was a kid in New York. And I suppose it still happens um, uh, when all the Jews and Italians in my neighborhood would uh, would try as hard as they could, save their money, and go down for Florida vacations. That was the place to go, right? And then when they got older, when they retired or got into their 60s and 70s, <clears throat> they would, and on Social Security or they retired, they would all re- relocate in Florida. And uh, whole neighborhoods, like whole neighborhoods, my half of my neighborhood, all these people who knew each other, the Jews and Italians were very big on going to Florida. I don't know, I mean, if you can make such distinctions, but it looks like, it seems like the Mediterranean people or the people uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean or off near, uh, you know, the Middle East somewhere, they're the ones who wanted to go down where it was warm. I guess that makes sense. Where they come from originally, what they're used to, what their people are like, even though they've lived for, let's say, generations in New York City. There's something in the blood, right? And... um but in other, in other places, too, in other northeastern cities and midwestern cities uh, where it's cold, you get a lot of Jews and Italians going down to Florida. And ho- like I say, whole neighborhoods would relocate down there. Um, in my neighborhood, Laurelton, Queens, um, <clears throat> there were uh, a couple of dozen people who relocated to the same exact um, development. They had all these developments for senior citizens, for old folks down there. And the neighborhoods would relocate, which I thought was really terrific. I always liked that. The idea of uh, you getting older and everybody sort of at the same time uh, goes down to be with their friends, who they're used to, who they know, who they have uh, generations of um, sorrows and celebrations and everything in common, bar mitzvahs, marriages, births, uh, everything. And so they sit around and talk to each other in these uh, fairly nice uh, you know, apartments down there. Um, and it's not, it wasn't all that terribly hot. Anyhow... Um, a lot of people like to go down to Florida. Uh, the idiot in chief goes down to Mar-a-Lago, right? I don't know what it's like down there. I don't know where in Florida that is, but um, obviously not the same place that uh, <laughs> that my uncle, who was a shipping, uh, who ran the shipping department in a bowling and billiards place. Not the same place he retired to. I think it's a different place. Um, as far as Maine goes. Um, I've never been there, really, except for one memorable time, later than September or earlier than June. Never. So I have no idea what the cold weather is like up there, but I'm hearing reports. And, uh, you know, if I don't like the cold here, I would never like it up there. And um, what I hear is that from late October to mid-April, basically people, uh, most people spend as much time as possible inside. They have... Um, you know, it's important to have the best heating possible. A lot of people, if they can afford it, have fireplaces, but wood is expensive unless you live out in the woods yourself. My wife came from Connecticut um, uh, originally, and her parents lived there um, right up until relatively recently. 
And they were also used to the cold more than I was, all of them, New Englanders, more than most New Yorkers are, I think. In the mornings here, my wife just wraps herself up and walks briskly. She has all kinds of different walks. She's just incredible to look at, my wife, uh, the way she moves. She has about 10 different ways of moving, depending on the mood or what she's doing or where she's headed or whatever in the house outside. But when she gets up in the morning and she, you know, the cold doesn't mean so much to her. She just gets up, she wraps herself up and she walks very briskly two miles to work. She is a truly hearty soul in more ways than one, I have to say. In fact, uh, I think any woman would have to be very hearty, would have to be a hearty soul to live with me. Anyhow, I loved it. I loved going up in the, uh, loved going up to Connecticut in the winter when I was, uh, when her parents still lived there. Especially for Christmas and, um, you know, the whole idea of a family. And it was a really, it was a great old house in most ways. It was, it was, it could be freezing in that house. It was built in 1855, her, her parents' house, the one that they, um, that they lived in up until a couple of years ago, a few years ago. 1855. So you'd sit on the porch. There was a, a veranda that went on like sort of almost two-thirds of the way around the, um, around the, um, the, the uh, house, and mostly entirely a wooden house, except for the stone foundation, but the rest was all wood. Um, um, and I would sit there in a rocking chair, and a rocking chair was probably uh, 100 years old, too. And <clears throat> just look out on, this, on the road, and the cars would pass by. But uh, being a big history buff, I used to envision what, imagine what that, I'm sitting on a porch that was built um, before the Civil War. Amazing. Uh, it's like time travel would take over my mind. And, and when I'm sitting there on the rocking chair looking out on this road, that road was once a dirt road, and I'd be looking at horses or horse-drawn wagons or carriages at the most. Now I'm looking at cars. But it's amazing. Just sitting there was like being, like being in a kind of a time machine. But I, lo- I love going up there uh, during, the, during the winter. I mean, it was bleak, you know. The leaves were off the trees and everything like that. But inside, it was all about inside. And um, there was always a big fire going in the fireplace. I loved, I loved fires and fireplaces. Uh, coming from um, a place where we, there weren't any fireplaces in, um, in my neighborhood. It was, uh, that was considered something that basically richer people had. You know, you didn't, you didn't have a fireplace. We had a furnace and we had, uh, you know, radiators and that was that. But to have a fireplace was considered a big deal. And I used to build, I used to love, I took great pleasure in building a fire in the fireplace up there, using my old Boy Scout skills. Um, you know, I, I take uh, some, you crumple up some sheets of newspaper, right, into a ball or, uh, you know, into a long sort of twisted uh, piece. Then you take small, dry twigs, then larger twigs, then um, a couple of smaller pieces of wood trimmed off the logs, and then you put, uh, you know, a couple of uh, split pieces of log over that, and you fire up a kitchen match, touch it to the paper, and bang, there it goes. Fire. You created fire. You're Prometheus. (laughs) You're Prometheus. This is such a primal, profoundly satisfying experience. I mean, outside it's dark and cold, and inside with everybody gathered around the fire, there is light and there's warmth and safety, right? This is obviously something that goes straight back to the beginning of human development. I mean, one of the, one of the things that people do that goes just straight all the way back. You're inside the cave, the fire is kept burning all the time, 
And outside, uh, the wolves are howling, the saber-toothed tigers are roaring, there are terrorists, there's Donald Trump. You know, you're threatened by everything outside, but inside the fireplace, you're cool. Actually, I first uh, learned about building a fire in the Boy Scouts. And the Boy Scouts, uh, is the Boy Scouts still just for boys? And the Girl Scouts still just for girls? I don't know anymore. And I know there was a whole big um, <coughs> article about this, about, uh, and I was talking about it on this show here. But, of course, I don't remember anything anymore. Was this about uh, three or four months ago that um, I think it was the Boy Scouts announced that they would be accepting, I know, transgender, yes. That's now something that's been decided. But that the Boy Scouts would be accepting girls into the Boy Scouts? <laughs> Why? I don't know. What's the point? I mean, um, if, if, if they're not already accepting each other into, in, into, into the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, they should just do it. Call them the Scouts and mix everybody together. Would that be good or would it be bad? I don't know. I really have no idea anymore. I really just can't keep up with it. Anyway, in the Boy Scouts, uh, when they were still Boy Scouts back in the day, the men used to take us on overnight hikes. Uh, and uh, sometimes in the late fall, too, when it was, it was pretty cold in the woods, low temperatures, snow, and we'd be in our sleeping bags, you know, wrapped up in sweaters and everything like that. Um, all our, or our New York City mothers would... Uh, you know, say we're going, catch, we're going to catch our death of cold. We're going to we're going to get pneumonia. You know, and the fathers would say, "Let him go. He needs to know what life is about." Same old thing. Um, but you know, we had our thick sleeping bags, and a lot of it was army surplus. The stuff we bought, we didn't, you know, we didn't buy uh, new stuff at places like Eaton, Eastern Mountain Sports or some uh, sports stores uh, specialized in that kind of camping gear. We had. Um, we had we bought uh, we went to army surplus stores where we bought everything you know so we had khaki colored tents that actually belong to people and to belong to the army you know used to belong to the army and sleeping bags belonged to the army and canteens belonged to the army and uh, tent pack everything all this stuff except for a couple of things like twine maybe we'd buy a, <coughs> you know we bought um, we bought uh, you know an axe you know to chop down trees or to cut cut wood whatever. But almost everything we brought uh, was uh, bought in army surplus stores. This is uh, the World War II, post-World War II generation. And um, I loved doing all that. I mean, it was difficult. It was hard because it was cold, and I always hated the cold. I mean, I hated it. But um, it was so much better than my usual, um, my usual existence, you know, in, in my house, to, to go out there and, and uh, to be out there with the guys, you know, and to, uh, to be... You know, making fires and sleeping in the pup tent, putting up the tent, all that kind of stuff. One time they showed us how to um, actually start a show, show us how to fire, start a fire the way the Indians did, presumably, presumably. You twirl a sharp pointed hardened stick into a soft hollow that you scoop out of a log. And, um, you know, we stripped the bark off a, a log first, a big log uh, that had fallen. And then you scoop uh, something out of the soft part of the wood. And you take a sharp pointed hardened stick and then, you know, you rub your hands together with a stick in between. And if you're lucky and, you're, um, and your citified hands could deal with it, the friction got to a point where you could carefully then touch a little dried moss or grass to the area. And uh, then you blow on it very gently. Uh, and when that caught... You get a small little flame. You stick it real quick under a nest of tiny and slightly larger twigs and small branches that you would set up, you know, beforehand. 
and a little more fanning with your hands, not too much, and there you are. You would get a fire. But that was, you know, I mean, building a fire like that was basically to get a merit badge, to get a merit badge. Um, I don't think there's any, are there any merit badges for radio broadcasters? I guess not. I'm not going to get a merit badge for uh, being on the radio for 4,000 years like I have been. But I should get a merit badge. I should even be made uh, second-class scout, second-class broadcaster, maybe first-class broadcaster. Anyhow, it was just for show to do uh, an Indian fire, you know, uh, friction in the log and all like that. Uh, the rest of the time, you just use kitchen matches. And uh, a couple of the World War II vets who ran our troop, and a lot of World War II vets ran uh, Boy Scout troops when I was growing up. These guys had been in the Battle of the Bulge in 1944 in Belgium. Uh, I can't explain what that is right now, but you could always Google it. You can Google anything. Battle of the Bulge, 1944 in Belgium. Uh, the Germans uh, had one last tremendous, huge uh, breakout uh, trying to drive through uh, basically the American lines and, uh, divide, and cut uh, the American armies in half. It would have been a disaster, and they almost succeeded. Uh, it was a big surprise. Nobody knew they had that many troops and supplies and ammunition left to do that. And um, a lot of people, a lot of Allied soldiers, a lot of uh, American soldiers got uh, killed and wounded during the Battle of the Bulge. Terrible. And um, taken prisoner, too. And that was throughout the rest of the war. But this, this stuff, they used to tell you these stories, you know. And, um, you know, people weren't, uh, like, uh, worrying about the psyches of little kids in those days. That's not something that was a big problem. <laughs> there, was a, there wasn't uh, a whole profession and a whole world of people worried about that, which I think is right, by the way. But in those days, people would just scare kids, you know, and uh, tell people the way things were, and the kids had to deal with it. Um, not something I'd recommend. I, like it, I liked it better the, uh, the generation where I was raising my kids, where you were supposed to pay attention to how these things affected kids. Anyhow, they, they would, these guys would tell us this scary stuff. I mean, they would, um, <clears throat> they would talk about frostbite, amputations, right? Actual pneumonia, people died. And uh, they built fires during the day, but never at night because it showed off, and sometimes not during the day either, it showed off your position to the German artillery. And I remember uh, reading somewhere that the winter of 1944 in Europe was the coldest one ever recorded up until that time, and maybe for some time afterwards too. So that's where we're out there fighting the, the Nazis and saving, you know, our, uh, saving our lives and truly saving our freedoms. Not like George Bush said uh, when, um, you know, why they attack us because they envy us our freedoms. Yeah, well, this was more the real deal, put it that way. Um, anyhow, we're out there in the woods on our hikes in New Jersey or upstate New York, and we'd sit around the fire we built, and we're wrapped in our heavy clothes, and we have our hats and gloves army surplus, all khaki colored. And we'd listen to these guys talk about their experiences. And this is not a movie, right? We're thinking, this is, this is real, sitting with our jaws hanging open. And um, it wasn't just the cold, which we were feeling at that moment. It's the fact that you could get killed any moment by somebody who, who, uh, who was your enemy. An amazing thing, an absolutely amazing thing. But the cold, the cold, the cold, the cold. I always hated the cold. I much preferred it to be too hot than to be too cold. Maybe that's because I was born in June. Is that because I was born in June? Does, when you're born, does that have something to do with it? Or is that just a leftover 1970s um, astrology stuff? <laughs> Very big in, in the 1970s was, uh, you know, what your, what your horoscope was would determine everything about you, right? 
But I always thought the people who are born in the winter could get along with the, could deal with the cold better. But I, I wonder. I don't know. Anyhow, I was born in June, and I always liked it up until the last several years. I always liked it better when the when the spring and summer came. But doesn't everybody right? Gets brighter. It gets uh, there's more light. You know the the heat the the uh, the the sun warms everything up. The flowers come out. <clears throat> or maybe I don't know. Maybe I like it better. Uh, I like uh, the the heat better or the warmth better because of my tribal heritage. Could that be it? Goes back to the Middle East originally. Or maybe it's because I was always a skinny kid and I felt the cold more than some other kids. You know. You know. And now that I'm an old geezer and I'm still too thin, I feel colder than ever. Ever than I ever did before. Even inside my apartment building. And the heat is always pretty good. Oh, man. And, and when I walk around my neighborhoods, you know, it amazes me, though it shouldn't, <clears throat> to see all the kids walking around on the street from junior high right through college, Columbia there. They're walking around in this weather with, with just jackets on. No hats. The jackets are open. And I've got, you know, like a flannel shirt, a vest, uh, two coats, you know, four hats, everything. I uh, said about when you get old, your circulation slows down. That's for sure. But these kids walk around, you know, and they're just talking a mile a minute. It's the metabolism, right? Um, and the, like I said, the old folks are me are, like me are dressed like it's the Arctic Circle. <laughs> and uh, the wind blows and it practically knocks you off your feet, which is another <clears throat> wonderful benefit of aging. Anyhow, cold, cold, cold. I mean, everybody, you know... We know people who cold is even a word to describe what people's personalities are like. We'll have some water. I'll have a little cold water right on this cold day. It's cold in the studio, but it's not too bad. I think I heard before there was some trouble with the uh, heat in the building here, and they're fixing the radiators, <clears throat> which I hope is true. <clears throat> Anyhow, but sometimes you need, that word is used. Sometimes, often, that word is used to describe people's personalities. They're people who are considered cold. Right. People who seem to be like, you know, what, missing a piece, missing a part that's uh, that feels empathy for other people. Uh, I've had people say that about my about me in my life. That's for sure. And I've acted as if I was cold. Sometimes it's not just the way you look. It's the way you act, too. You know, you don't extend yourself uh, when people need you. You're not warm. Cold. Anyhow, people say cold, not caring. And maybe some people just are warmer. Some people are just born like they're warmer people. They're more generous. They're more sympathetic souls. And other people are just born, um, you know, um, frosty, cool. They're just not connected to the sufferings of their fellow humans as much. Seems to me Trump and his whole family, when I look at them, I mean, they, they often to me they look like vampires, especially Ivanka. What's her name? Ivanka? Ivanka Trump. Who? Uh, but the, the when I see them all, when I see Donald and Ivanka and... Um, especially the kids, they look two ways to me. They look sad and they look cold. And, um, <clears throat> but as far as being cold, and maybe in my own defense, since I've been accused of being this way, and because I've known people who seem cold, I think more often than not, it's a defense. It's a defense against being close to other people. It's just too painful, and I've mentioned this before many times, for some people to handle the constantly changing, you know, the fortunes of love, the separations, the back and forth, people dying, you, they go away. Uh, you know, it's, it's very hard. And for people who have trouble handling that, <clears throat> they develop a kind of uh, protection. And they can act cold and seem cold. But some of it's just style. I think it's just style. I think um, there are whole cultures, right? 
I mean, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants have this rap pinned on them all the time. Um, that uh, that they aren't particularly, um, you know, they aren't particularly, uh, or at least comparatively demonstrative. You know, uh, the Mediterraneans, uh, the British stiff upper lip, right? And the Mediterranean types, you know, the Italians, the Greeks, uh, the Jews, talking about uh, the Arabs, the people who live in New York, so all these people, people from South America, they're always waving their arms around, talking loud, and, um, of course, that's stereotyping, but just the same, right? Um, and, of course, it's all bullshit. Love and charity occur everywhere in every place. Um, and the style doesn't make any difference. So all the yelling and gesticulating um, are not uh, often guarantees of a warm heart. And, um, you know, because <clears throat> I've known people who other people say, oh, they're cold. Well, that person's cold. No, you just have to get to know them. That's all. Maybe it's a little harder to warm up for them to warm up to you. But when they do... <clears throat> They're just as genuine and generous and warm as anybody else. It's just a cold hands, warm heart, whatever the hell that means. I wonder what the origin of that is, cold hands, warm heart. But just on a purely physical basis, the cold, man, let me tell you, when I think back on my life, I don't remember any record hot days or times I was trapped in some way in a situation where it was too hot. I just don't remember the particulars of that. But I know, even though that happened many times, I don't remember it, but I'm sure... As hell recall, the image, the images of me, even I remember feeling like I'm shivering when I remember the times when I was the most cold in my life. You know, first of all, I was talking about those overnight hikes. I would get really cold sometimes. That was really hard. But, uh, you know, they gave us, they did us, we did so much exercise, you know, hiking back and forth and then into the sleeping bag and the warm fire. So that was good. But it was cold out there in the woods. Another time I remember it was really cold was our furnace broke. I was about 12 years old. And our oil burner uh, broke down in the middle of a very cold night in the winter. And even with all our clothes on and blankets over us, it was too cold to sleep. Really awful. The furnace repair guy didn't show up till mid-morning. I thought I was going to die. I was shivering the whole time. Other times, I remember up in New England a few times, um, <clears throat> where people live in very old houses. And this old house that uh, my wife's parents had was a wonderful old house, and they spent as much money as they could afford to maintain it, but still, it was a big house, and it was old, and it had, uh, you know, places where the windows, which were old, and the boards originally, even some of the replacement ones were so old, that the wind, the cold wind, and it was colder up there than New York City, would whistle through there, and it was really cold. Also, they were trying to save money, like everybody else, on heating oil. So it could be really freezing in there. I mean, even getting underneath in bed, you know, with comforters and blankets on, I mean, your nose would, like, freeze off. It was hard to sleep. Up in Maine one time, I remember one of the coldest things I've ever... I think this is the coldest I ever remember it. This is it, the, my major cold memory, right? I was up in Maine. I went to uh, somebody's wedding. <clears throat> it was in late October or maybe early November, and it was freezing uh, or below freezing. Uh, maybe it was 20 degrees. And we were sleeping in basically uh, in an old cabin that you could just put your hand right through the wall and the cracks between the, um, the gaps between the, the boards and the wall. And uh, there was no heat whatsoever. The, uh, there was supposed to be a, a wood stove, but it wasn't maintained. And it was the coldest I ever was. I mean, um, outside it was a strong wind and it was in the middle of the woods. It was freezing. And, I, you know, I have never been colder than I was that night. Never been colder than I was that night. It was really unbelievable. I mean, it was dangerous to even consider. I mean, you had to. Sometimes if you had to go, you had to go. But to get up 
and to go to the bathroom even was dangerous. I mean, uh, something could easily have frozen up and snapped right off. I mean, that's how it was really cold out there. Really horrible. <clears throat> Speaking of cold, the past couple of Sundays I was watching, um, watching some football. And uh, around this time of the year, you always, you always see games uh, played in the snow or when it's 10 degrees out. And uh, <clears throat> it's a macho scene. You know, these guys are, are gigantic guys, and a lot of them are way overweight. But uh, there's a lot of calories to burn there, right? And uh, who knows what it is that they stick in their veins. I mean, even though they're checked, you know, you know, 20 times a day for the whole football season. Who knows what, they, what, they're, uh, what they're imbibing or drinking or swallowing or ingesting. But, uh, they're, and these guys don't, but they have enough testosterone to... Uh, to power a nuclear warship, right? Each one of these guys, you know, and um, that keeps them warm. And uh, the comp- competition, the running around on the field, all that kind of stuff. So even though when they go to the sidelines, they wear all this heavy stuff. When they're out there, you know, you see some of those guys get out there, they're just wearing the same exact stuff they'd be wearing if it was uh, 82 degrees. And uh, it was, uh, you know, um, or, you know, 85 degrees. And it was... Um, it was a summer training camp. I mean, they're out there like it's 10 degrees. Uh, I was watching some game. It was in New England someplace. And um, they're out there with their short sleeve uh, jerseys on, you know, and, um, you know, their hands and their feet and their head just, uh, you know, they had the helmets on. But it's amazing to me. And, um, but watching these guys play in the snow and the freezing cold, it reminded me of one of my other coldest memories. This one I remember vividly for lots of reasons. I played, uh, I once played in a bowl game. I played for Hofstra College uh, in the Cement Bowl. It was, <laughs> it was in West, you never heard of it, of course. The Cement Bowl, this is not the Cotton Bowl we're talking about here. The Cement Bowl in Westchester, Pennsylvania. We played Westchester State Teachers College. And uh, right away, I know you already guessed that I wasn't playing on the football team. Uh, I played in the Hofstra College marching band. Second trombone sometimes demoted to third trombone because they didn't really practice as much as I should have. Um, and that was my position. I played it for four years from my freshman uh, year right through my senior year in college. And I joined the marching band because I like playing the trombone. Uh, when I first started playing, I was in my first year of junior high school. I was still at that point the smallest kid in the class, including girls. And... Um, so, uh, but they, what they needed was another trombone player in the school orchestra. I suppose... Being as small as I was, it would have been much better if I had a flute or a trumpet, right? Some, or maybe a kazoo. But the trombone was what they needed, and the trombone was what I played. The trombone standing up was taller than I was. Um, it was but it was, I liked it because it was big and loud, and I got a lot of my suppressed anger out. You know, I was always being told, you know, not so loud, <laughs> Not so loud. Uh, one thing I could do is play the trombone loud. And then I played in my high school orchestra. And then again, when I went to college, uh, like I mentioned, because I liked playing and it was the only way out of ROTC. When you, in my college, it was one of those colleges that had uh, leased the land that the college was built from the U.S. Army. And um, so ROTC was compulsory for... Um, for all the males who went to Hofstra. And the only way to get out of it uh, was to have, you know, some physical disability or to be in the marching band for some reason. So over four years, I played in the marching band. We wore a blue blazer, blue blazer, 
uh, that had a gold Hofstra coat of arms, whatever the hell that was. And uh, we had white bucks. Can you imagine? And um, we had blue pants. Yes, blue pants and um, gray socks. And we marched up and down a lot of football fields. Uh, we, and we, we did something called the Flying H when we were playing. We were all pretty good players, actually. It was the Flying H for Hofstra. And we played the, uh, the Hofstra fight song, which I, I couldn't remember if you uh, put a gun to my head. Uh, on Thanksgiving, I remember, we marched up and down uh, the field in the form of a turkey. Uh, we couldn't really. We had no idea. And then the band leader was always yelling at us. He said... The tail, bring it up, bring it tight, tighten up there, the tail, the beak. <laughs> I was in the beak, or maybe I was part of this stuffing, I don't remember. I think I was in the beak. And I remember I was in the beak, yes, because the front of, that was the front of the band, and I recall this because we marched right behind um, the cheerleaders. This was an extra benefit of being in the college uh, band, uh, in the marching band specifically, you got to see the cheerleaders up close wiggling around about two feet in front of the trombone slide, uh, which was very suggestive, the whole thing. Am I, am I allowed to say that anymore? Can I actually say things like that anymore? I mean, is it insensitive or crude or demeaning that I actually recall being turned on by sexy cheerleaders? Am I allowed to do that anymore? When, when they still have cheerleaders at football games, you know, by the way. College cheerleaders, they have, they have cheerleaders, professional cheerleaders at, um, at games. And they don't show them anymore. They used to show them a little bit, not a lot, but they don't show them anymore at all. So it's this weird, uh, what's that word? It's this weird uh, out-of-focus uh, cultural situation where um, uh, dissonance, it's this cultural dissonance, cognitive dissonance, cultural dissonance, where their cheerleaders still everywhere. Um, uh, women who are skimpily dressed, acting as sexy as they possibly can, but you don't see them. How long they'll be... Che- I, I, I imagine, I'm, I'm predicting that cheerleading may have a hard time continuing. I don't know. But this stuff, you don't even know what to say anymore, right? You just express something that's a memory. The, the anti-sexual harassment revolution, definitely necessary, to put it mildly. There's no words to say how necessary it is. But I feel like sometimes it's made a kind of unfortunate bargain with politically correct censorious speech and behavior. It really has. This is what happens when you, get, uh, when you get a lot of zealots involved in what is something otherwise a very, very righteous cause. I don't know. Anyhow, when we weren't marching, the band sat in the stands at field level and we played all sorts of uh, rousing songs to urge the team on. The marching band was also the concert band. An extremely, like I mentioned, extremely good concert band. Some very good players in there. Some of them went on to be professionals. And so when we were playing at the games, we, we considered ourselves too hip to be interested in football. It was a big joke to us, right? But uh, we were out there to rouse them along to play all kinds of things. Remember we played uh, the theme from Peter Gunn, which I should have gotten for this show. No, I can't. Totally out of Anyhow, the theme from Peter Gunn. If you're old enough, you remember that. And it had a great trombone part. But I, um, but it did get us out. The important thing of the band was <clears throat> we got to play music, which we all love to do, and it got us out of this brainless ROTC program. And that got more. That got really vital, more important as Vietnam got to be crazier and crazier. Anyhow, we played in a cement bowl, and uh, so in 1962, in my freshman year, that long ago, we uh, we boarded the bus uh, out on Long Island. Uh, at Hofstra, and we went to Westchester, Pennsylvania, about a four-hour drive, I think it was, to play in the cement bowl. And um, 
I presume it was called a cement bowl because cement was the um, was the big industry in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I mean, it wasn't orange groves. I know that because it was fucking freezing that day. It was freezing. It was freezing. Maybe 15 degrees. And some band members didn't even show up. I know that. Most of the rest uh, complained as soon as we exited the bus and discovered we had to play the entire game sitting on metal benches. They had these metal bleachers. And it was 15 degrees. Uh, there was frost all around. Uh, and there was hardly anybody in the stands. It was so cold. And it was snow coming down, too. And maybe football wasn't such a big deal in this town. Or more likely, the residents of the town were home, nice and warm, watching another game on TV. And the sky was heavy, it was dull gray, and it was dismal. And the worst part about squeezing music out of anything made of metal, right? you know, I mean, you had to, if you had a trombone or a trumpet, that was the worst. Other instruments, instruments, not so bad. But the keys on the trumpet started to freeze, and the slide on the trombone barely moved. Usually we kept the slide... Um, we, kept this, we wiped the slide with oil and sprayed water on it from time to time to keep it uh, sliding. But at that day, the water froze, and we couldn't use it. And um, we were reduced to playing like one or two. We had hardly any notes we could play. Uh, the band director, who was a leader of the concert band, took tremendous pride in his band. And his response to our complaints about our lips freezing to the mouthpieces and not being able to play and freezing fingers was that we were a bunch of lily-livered pansies, he called us. <laughs> I don't know about lily-livered, but pansies? Pansies, okay. Pansies have the sense to show up in the springtime, not in the middle of the fucking winter. Anyhow, we played there for what seemed like, you know, two days in a row, but it was about, I don't know, two hours. And then we got on the bus and went back home. Um, And um, uh, I got back to my house about 7 p.m. I never wanted to get back to my house, of course, for all the reasons I've mentioned over the years. But at least one thing, uh, the heat was on. That much was okay. The heat was on. I'll tell you, when I, when I leave this earthly paradise, I want my body to be cremated. I do. No dark hole in the ground for me. No, no, no. I saw enough of that in the cemetery when I was a kid. I don't want to see, I don't want my, to think of myself going into the ground, especially if it's cold. I want a nice little private funeral pyre, pyre just for myself. And that's one way I know I'll stay warm. Strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say in his homely way, I'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. And you talk of your cold, but through the parka's fold, it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze, till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and, Cap, says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess, and if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. 
Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chill clean through to the bone. Yet it ain't being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that, foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. Well, a pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the break of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. And he crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. With a corpse half hid that I couldn't get rid, I hurried horror-driven. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and because of a promise given, it was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you to cremate my last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low, and the trail was bad. And I felt half mad, but I swore I'd not give in. And I'd often sing to that hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lakely Barge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a thrice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying round and I heaped the fuel higher. Well, the flames just soared and the furnace roared, such a blaze you never did see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled and the huskies howled and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out, and they danced about before I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peek inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, Please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. And since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, this is the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see 
was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. Yep, uh, cremation of Sam McGee. The first time I ever heard that, that was by Johnny Cash, by the way. Um, read by Johnny Cash. The poem is by Robert Service, a little-known American poet, but um, interesting poet. Um, the first time I ever heard that was at a, at a surrounding a campfire in the Boy Scouts, and somebody recited it by memory. Amazing. All right, try to stay warm if you can, and I will do the same and uh, attempt to uh, talk to you again next week. If you want to get in touch with me, please do. This is Mike Fader. Go to the Fader Files to do that. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar. If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, like my fire Come on, baby, like my fire Try to set the night on fire The time to hesitate is through No time to watch